Okay, good morning, <clears throat> and today is Wednesday, January 27, the year of our Lord, as David Knight says, and I think that's fine. Uh, today is the third installment of the discussion of apotheosis, apotheosis now, um, obviously that's related to Apocalypse now, uh, transfiguration and the Junren, <clears throat> uh, which means true man or true human being, uh, which I'm going to get to later at the end. Today I want to wrap up um, three uh, initial um, themes. Apotheosis, Transfiguration, the Tabor Light, and then uh, link it to what's called the Mahavakyas from Vedanta. Maha means great, Vakyas means saying. And so these are four particular Maha, four, four particular great sayings from the Vedic tradition <clears throat> that give, I think, the Vedic Advaita Vedanta and uh, Vedanta classical view uh, of um, ontology and the path, ontology meaning the nature of being, which is the relationship between man and God, or human and divine, or our manifestation and our essence, which is very much what uh, transfiguration and apotheosis are all about, um, uh, experience, spiritual experience earned by effort uh, of a temporary union with the divine or a greater access to divine light and a, a kind of deification leading to um, you know, greater uh, union with the divine or complete and perfect attainment from the Christian, Catholic, Eastern, and Western Orthodox traditions. Uh, comparing that to Mahavakyas, we see very clearly the difference between uh, West and East in terms of the Catholic view, which has you know a, a lot of value, um, but I think some limitation, frankly, um, because of how the human is seen and a certain sense of um, Yeshua, Jesus, as a required, necessary intermediary um, and I, uh, that, that establishes a certain limit too. Like, we can't be what he was. And the Hindu tradition, the Vedantic tradition, doesn't have that view at all, nor the Buddhist, nor the, the Chinese Taoist and Confucian view of Chenren. The Eastern views don't have this limit in terms of human potential. In fact, their view is that the human being is, um, is uh, reality, is, is Brahma, and you'll see that with the Mahavakyas. No intermediary needed, because the intermediary is actually a limiting factor, and so in the Western approach. So let me give some of the um, key takeaways from, in my view, from the Wikipedia pages on apotheosis, then transfiguration, then Tabor light, which is the light that was transfiguring or apotheotic to Jesus on that mountain, Mount Tabor. So from the section on Christianity in the page on apotheosis, and this, you know, this is review. Uh, traditional mainstream theology, both East and West, meaning Eastern Orthodox and Western Roman Catholic, both views Jesus Christ as the pre-existing God, capital G, who undertook mortal existence, not as a mortal being who attained divinity. 
And that's the big difference, one of the big differences with the East and the West. It holds traditional East and West Christian Catholic mainstream theology. It holds that he has made it possible for the human beings, for human beings to be raised to the level of sharing divine nature. He became human to make humans, quote, partakers of divine nature, Metexas. For, quote, for this is why the word became man, and the Son of God, capital S, capital G, became the Son of Man, so that man, by entering in communion with the Logos, the Word, and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. Um, and that <clears throat> that comes from uh, Irenaeus. And then other quotes, For he has made man, he was made man, so that we might be made God, Athanasius. And then finally, the only begotten, the only begotten. And that's a critical uh, interject <laughs> or doctrine in East and West theology, Western, you know, Catholic, Christian theology. He's the only one. And that is absolutely contradicted by the raw material. And, um, you know, choose which beliefs you think are more uh, accurate to reality. Uh, Nichinanda said, we're all gods here. They are all gods here, um, and that's the Vedantic view, and that's uh, much more compatible with the Buddhist view than either uh, Western, you know, Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic views of, of the nature of man and the absolute necessity for the intermediary of Jesus um, for even then only a limited uh, apotheotic or deification or attainment of the human. So, the last quote from the page from Aquinas, the only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man, might make men gods. So he made man, meaning God made man through Jesus, might make men gods or sharers of the divinity with a small g. <clears throat> and that's um, not a bad teaching. <laughs> it's, very, it's very accessible. And um, accessible meaning, okay, you know, I'm kind of a schmo, is the normal view for humans. I'm kind of a schmuck. I'm kind of a nothing much. And I don't know much. And um, he's great. He came in with miracles and he said certain things. And now they tell us and they have lots of robes and lots of churches and lots of uh, history. And I guess I need them, is the view. Um, and in that is a certain... Uh, deep limit or, or very hard limit to um, the understanding of human potential, I think. On the page, Transfiguration of Jesus, one of the key takeaway paragraphs is um, this, I believe. In the 7th century, St. Maximus, the confessor, said that the senses, the senses, the senses of the apostles were transfigured to enable them to perceive the true glory of Christ. In the same vein, building on 2 Corinthians 3.18, by the end of the 13th century, uh, the concept of, quote, transfiguration of the believer had stabilized, and uh, St. Gregory Palamas, uh, the one who talked about hesychasm, and that pra the practices that bring, the practices that generate transfiguration. And so Palamas considered, quote, true knowledge of God to be a transfiguration of man by the Spirit of God. And final line, the spiritual transfiguration of the believer then continued to remain a theme for achieving closer union with God. And uh, the next paragraph, this is in the section on historical development of the, 
the teachings associated with transfiguration. <clears throat> One of the generalizations of Christian belief has been that the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox, emphasizes transfiguration while the Western Church focuses on, focuses on crucifixion. This is very true, actually. And it said, although in practice both branches continue to attach significance to both events, although specific nuances continue to persist, actually they really are quite distinct. <clears throat> in many ways, the West, um, uh, the Catholic and many Christian groups, Protestant, seem to be worshipping a crucified God-man uh, and elevate the crucifixion. I mean, they wear a crucifixion around their neck, right? Or Jesus hung up on the cross. I guess Eastern Orthodox wears cross too, so that's crucifixion. But it does seem, but it seems that the practices of hesychasm that Palamas formulated in the 14th century, calling it uh, the uncreated light of God. <laughs> I don't know why. Why can't you just say it's a created light of God? Is that some problem there? They have some limits about <clears throat> understanding God is infinite, it seems. I don't know. They seem to have a hard time realizing that God is infinity and they're all that created, all that is, is simply uh, an appearance of uh, source creator God. They seem to have a problem with that. Uh, but though he, understanding the created light, uncreated light of God or the light of transfiguration on Mount Tabor, uh, pave the way for Eastern Orthodoxy to be much more involved in seeking transfiguration, while the Western monasticism um, of you know Gregorian monks who make beer, or Trappist monks make beer, um, and some other groups, um, <clears throat> seems to be less involved that the. Praxis and practice and ways of um, transforming the senses, right? St. Maximus saying that senses of the apostles were transfigured to enable them to perceive true glory of Christ, which is to receive a transfiguring light <clears throat> or have an experience of apotheosis. That seems to be well appreciated in the Eastern, less appreciated in the Western, and the Western very much is associated with... Um, an emphasis, it seems, on the death, while the Eastern is more associated with the um, potential for rebirth of the believer. So when we look at the section on the page on Tabor Light, <clears throat> uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy, paragraph starts, according to the Hesychast mystic tradition of Eastern Orthodox spirituality, a completely purified saint, <laughs> they they already got a problem with that. I mean, just because a person has contact with intelligent infinity, the raw material, just because a person has a transfiguring experience of light or an attainment of um, realizing emptiness or non-duality or boundlessness, trans, you know, non non-dual awareness, does that mean that they've been purified? They're they're a completely purified saint, or or is it just a Wikipedia problem? The person who won out. On the uh, on adding the uh, text, put that in. So uh, there, there are certain, frankly, um, uh, lack of sharp discernment in the Western uh, understanding of mystic practice and the work of total self transformation. I mean, they have no belief in reincarnation. So if you don't believe in reincarnation, 
then there seems to be, from their view, this one-shot um, approach. One shot does it, meaning one incarnation. This one is the uh, point of uh, eternal, the, the, the choice point, the, the crossroads for the being to either go to eternal bliss in heaven or eternal damnation in hell. And that's the end of that. And the one that goes to eternal bliss in heaven or something was what? Completely purified? Is that their view? They don't even think that way. And so if you reject reincarnation, you actually um, minimize human potential and human work and spiritual uh, obligation, responsibility. And so uh, getting rid of um, uh, what is uh, onerous, like (laughs) the common view that, oh my God, I have to come back again and again and again and again and again, and Ra is two billion years older than third density, what a long travail. So getting rid of that notion of reincarnation or rejecting that concept, rejecting the reality and the teaching, uh, yeah, offloads some uh, onerous burden of um, um, excruciating excruciating detail to responsibility for the soul and also limits human potential (laughs) and also under appreciates human nature. So you want to pay, you got to play, or you want to play, you got to pay. You want um, to get to the summit of perfection, which is basically omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, right? You want to to have the maximal attainment or even consider maximal attainment. You're going to have to welcome and, and make peace with the responsibility that, that, that it, that that's a, that that the responsibility which that uh, potential confers the uh, notion of potential derives from the notions of true nature and if a being if if a teaching when a teaching understands that <clears throat> true nature is seven dimensional seven chakras as energy vortices associated with seven-dimensional seven dimensional existence or seven planes in the octave, um, the majority of which above us are all invisible and somewhat inconceivable. Uh, and therefore, um, the path to its attainment or the path uh, through the dimensions is long and... Um, could be seen, or rightly can be seen, as a pretty massive responsibility, right? Return what's been given to you, as Nityananda would said, the true purpose of human life, to do, uh, to, to do the work, uh, to do your danda as a seven-dimensional entity uh, made in the likeness of God, yeah, with the potential of returning to source and attaining those um, three aspects of deity, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, at least as pertains to uh, mastery of the octave, uh, the notion of um, true nature sets the limit to uh, an understanding of human potential. Because potential is simply the, is defined naturally as the work of achieving um, the fullest expression of true nature. So 
understanding true nature, I mean, I wrote about this in Universal Vision in a chapter called Self and God. Um, notions of God um, define the notions of self and vice versa. So notions of self um, have much play in notions of deity and source. Notion of human nature, definitions of self or our being, um, indicate potential. And if the potential is um, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, basically limitless awareness and power and presence, uh, obviously uh, the work to achieve that potential is massive, thus the obligation and responsibility likewise is massive. And that's a bummer, man, (laughs) for a common mind or for anyone. But what's not said is that higher dimensional life is increasingly joyous, blissful, easy, actually, and very pleasant. That's why old uh, old uh, logos, <laughs> the logoi of this system, made the middle octave, the middle octave between the last one and the next one. This octave is where we have all this trouble in densities three, four, five, particularly the middle three, the toxic middle, the distortion. <laughs> the uh, the distortion Oreo, where the uh, the modeled is in the middle, <laughs> the muddy middle of this octave, where you have, uh, particularly in third density, I mean, in fourth and fifth, there's very little distortion, actually, and they're very clear, and they're very well. But here in third, um, it's the muddy middle, and um, <clears throat> that's a, you know, <laughs> that's a matter of uh, the learning of this Logos, actually. But, um, human nature, the, the understanding of human nature defines an understanding of human potential. An understanding of human potential defines or confers an understanding of path. An understanding of path then uh, mixed in with human potential and human nature, lower and higher, distorted and non, uh, indicates or, or supports t- understanding of praxis or practice. And the Eastern Orthodox may have, uh, may not understand or appreciate reincarnation, and may indeed have a limited understanding of human nature and human potential. Mm. But they do understand the value of practice and the reality that one can transform oneself to be open to um, transfiguring light, which may appear as a big light around me, or uh, an enlightening experience or an enlightenment experience of greater light, which means awareness. Light is awareness. Uh, Light is ultimately um, the twinkling of of Godhead in the octave, in a sense. So, then, (laughs) um, from the Brahmanic or Vedic tradition, the Mahavakyas, uh, from the page on Mahavakyas, uh, according to Advaita Vedanta tradition, the four Upanishadic statements, there are four of them, indicate ultimate reality of the individual, Atman, with the Supreme, Brahman. And the what, <coughs> excuse me, the, the uh, Vakya, the Mahavakya of the four, there are many, ma- many Mahavakyas, they say, but four are considered the big ones. <laughs> and they are Prajnanam Brahma. Uh, prajna or wisdom is Brahman. Brahman is Paramatman, according to Nityanda. Parabrahman, Paraman, 
not Brahmin, Brahman, is a deity source creator, one infinite creator, intelligent infinity, no problem. And so the ultimate unity of the individual with Brahman is their understanding of a path and potential, potential realized by path, uh, or human nature and its potential realized by practice. So nature, human nature, leads to an understanding of human potential, leads to the definitions and um, delineation of path or practice for the realization of human potential, which is the fullest expression of human nature. And that would be reunion (laughs) with Godhead. And so the four Mahavakyas, Prajnanam Brahma, Prajnana is Brahman, wisdom is Prajna or wisdom, but wisdom is Brahman or wisdom is Godhead, but it's not, you know, in Buddhism, there are two understandings uh, that are pretty sharp to me uh, regarding the word Prajna or Panya in Pali. Uh, Wisdom, discernment, as well as insight realization. And so it covers, it's very similar to Buddhi in in Nityananda's formulation. Discriminating awareness, uh, but it's also non-dual. And you can say that the true wisdom is a is generally uh, manifesting as a conceptualization of the non-dual. This is very interesting. Anyway, the second one, Ayam Atma Brahma, uh, translated somewhat poorly as um, this self, Atman, is Brahman. Ayam Atma Brahma, this Atma is Brahma, meaning this one here, <laughs> meaning me, uh, is the view. <clears throat> and the third is what I really want to focus on, Tatvamasin, uh, translated commonly <laughs> by uh, Western uh, Westerners influenced by their uh, Saint, their reading of the Bible in the King James edition, uh, translated commonly by them as Thou art that. And I want to get into that, into basically as a, just briefly to explain how that, to me, is the heart of the the pith or core Mahavakya that explains the Vedantic view of human nature, human potential. Tat Vam Asi, the last one is Aham Brahmasi, Brahmasi. I am a part of Brahma or I am divine. Aham, right? Like Aham Vichara, self-inquiry, or Aham Kara, Aham Kara, self-making. Right, <laughs> so what needs to be understood from a Buddhist view, from the the Advaita Vedanta view, is that uh, while we can say aham brahma brahmasi, meaning I am Brahma, haha, actually the aham is is true nature, not conscious mind definition by concept. So any kind of conceptual sense of selfhood is not Brahma. That's Maya, not Brahma, and with sufficient buddhi or prajna, the, the mundane prajna, uh, and then there's supramundane prajna, which is insight or non-duality, but um, with wisdom, discernment, and then with realization. Um, one will know that it's not I am Brahma, but I is Brahma, because uh, I, am, I is I. I am the one... <laughs> I'm not getting uh, inflated here, okay? Uh, I am the one that sees. I am the one that speaks. 
but it isn't body and it isn't mind or it's coming through the temporary vehicles of body and mind and spirit complex and the entirety of the seven-dimensional energy fields of the seven chakras, which is the seven-dimensional vehicles of the Logos of Godhead. And that's what it means. I is Brahma, not I am Brahma. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Okay. On the section down the old page here on Tatvamasi, um, let's go straight to the etymology because that's where the fun stuff is. Uh, Tatvamasi, Tat, you see, they're very smart, actually. <laughs> Buried in here is some very important teaching. Tat, the, the section on, you see, Tatvamasi translated variously as thou art that, thou, that thou art. What the fuck is this with thou, you know? <laughs> I mean, please, you know, we're, this is not 1640. How about, thou art that, that thou art, that art thou, you are that, that you are, you're it. Comes down to some hippie types say, you're it. It's like tag. So, okay, fine. Um, Tat, etymologically, is, yeah, tatva, same as tatagata, yes, indeed, thatness, reality, and it's the same as sat, baboon. And they even understand that here. Tat, true essence or root or origin of everything that exists, is sat. Tat is sat. So, sat chit, ananda, is tat sit, tat chit, not shit. Okay, I'll have to be careful. Tat chit, ananda. The bliss of tat chit is the same as sat chit. Consciousness is chit, or awareness, because it's non-dual, right? So, awareness we can use as non-dual awareness. Non-dual consciousness is sort of dualistic awareness. And awareness is non-dual consciousness. How's that? And so, consciousness born of ignorance, Gautama said, fifth skanda consciousness is self-consciousness, is subjectivism, is based on the eighth fetter conceit, is under avidya. It's not free of avidya. After avidya is gone, moksha is attained, uh, one leaves the octave, then uh, there's no longer, uh, we can say, you know, this is just terminology. We no longer say awareness, a consciousness, but we say awareness. We use the word awareness as intrinsically non-dual sentience, right? Presence. That is I. (laughs) Sat is aham. Or chit, you know, sat chit is uh, true nature. And that is uh, awareness, unbound awareness, non-dual, infinite sentience. Sensitivity, what is what the hell is consciousness and awareness anyway, right? It's um, cognizance, <laughs> uh, reflectivity of a, a, a sentient function. Eh? Those the, the, you can't really reduce those words too much to to deeper understanding. The um, recognition um, of of comprehension or comprehensibility, <laughs> awareness. Definitely. So, anyway, um, smartly here, they understand that tat is sat, and so tat as uh, principle or thatness or reality um, as sat, like satchitananda or um, sattva, like bodhisattva, sat, um, is what is reality. 
reality, the existent, uh, tata, tathagata, same, tathagata, the thus come one, the such come one as a term for gautama. And so the existent reality, uh, beingness, the base of, you know, the true, na- true nature of light. How's that? The true nature of light, the source of light. Ra said, you know, the origin of light is the action of free will upon love. Okay, so boundless will, free will, uh, acting upon boundless love, generating boundless light. That is omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. Ba-boom! And so light is uh, the principle that, you know, boundless light confers or indicates omnipresence. That that omnipresence, all-present, everything is um, the result of it being created, things being created, light being created. Created by what? Created by the action of free will upon love, which is omnipotence acting on omniscience. So the action of free will upon love, as Ross said, first principle acts on second principle. If it's conceived linearly, uh, generates third principle, law of light. The origin or the 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 uh, origin of the potential of, of light, which um, when a being uh, is in moksha, <laughs> is, you know, beyond, Ra said we've become light. So they understand their identity as light, but they're not yet free of identity. They only, they understand themselves as seven-dimensional light. They don't understand themselves, they don't fully have, don't have full, have not fully yet realized that um, they are the source of light. They know it but they haven't yet fully perfected the seven chakras to get to that attainment. Um, I is Brahman. (laughs) I is the source of light. I is omnipotence uh, acting upon omniscience that generates this uh, omnipresent light. So Tattvamasi is basically saying that um, uh, Tvam is you or thou. (laughs) You are Tat (laughs) or you are Sat. Or you are tat, uh, a satchit, and, and that's blissful, ananda. So, I is reality. So I would say, so tatvamasi, I is reality. Uh, true nature is infinite, is infinite source, is pre-luminal source of totality. And that's basically saying the true nature of self is God. And, you know when that is achieved, when there's a realization. So transfiguration or apotheotic experience, because there's a difference between uh, a glimpse of um, boundless light or a transfiguring experience versus complete and perfect enlightenment. Buddhism, four stages, and Hinduism understands that well. That um, one shot does not finish the great work. The uh, magnum opus <laughs> is not achieved by a single apotheotic experience or transfiguring light contact with intelligent infinity, in Ra's term. So, uh, uh, Sat is Brahman, Sat is suchness, thusness, as it isness, reality, existence, true nature. All those are words for um, the the source of light that is both transcendent to light and immanent in light. 
light as an expression of its source um, is not separate from its source, and its true nature right now is infinity or intelligent infinity. We just are not at the level where we can perceive it. We just have not finished the seven chakra working to be able to perceive um, form and its nature light as fully expressive now of infinity, fully infinitely manifesting or fully manifesting infinity. We don't know what that even means. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I'm not there. So only only the, the guardians know and Nityananda and guys who are finished and they don't talk so much about it. But the point is, Tatvamasi, um, I is Tat, I is reality. The self is, the true nature of the self or identity is uh, the source of light, which is called God, <laughs> or one infinite creator or intelligent infinity. And so <clears throat> you might want to look more at uh, Tatvamasi and this page on uh, Mahavakyas. It's very interesting. Then, <laughs> if that wasn't enough for you, um, the second half of today, uh, now, I want to look at one particular so-called saint of the Eastern Orthodox tradition named Saint Savas, the fool for Christ, who um, was, in the, was in the Mediterranean zone um, in the 14th century, or 13th and 14th century. So let's read his bio from a page associated called Mystagogi, Mystagogi Resource Center, Orthodox Christian Ministry of John Sanidopoulos. I don't know who that is, but this is straight up Eastern Orthodox tradition <clears throat> and a bio of St. Savas of Vatopaidi, Fool for Christ, um, around 1349, where some of his main working was there. This is a page... Um, put out in 2016, but very interesting. So this is what the Eastern Orthodox hesychastic practice looks like to some degree, or one version of it, one fellow who did it. <clears throat> and I'll read the whole page. Some of it's not critical, but you can get some of the human uh, context in which he lived and um, did his work. <clears throat> St. Savas was born around 1283, in Thessalonica, uh, Thessaloniki, son of virtuous parents who eventually became monastics, his parents. His name in the world was Stephen. Having received his education in his native city and learning to love virtue, right, love virtue, like loving truth, at the age of 18, he secretly left his family, hmm. went to the holy, holy mountain of Athos, Mount Athos, where he subjected himself to a strict elder who lived in a cell at, uh, lived at a cell of Vatopaidi in Karyes. It's still there, these monasteries. There he was tonsured, meaning became a monastic, took the name of Savas. Patiently he endured the rigorousness of his elder and the difficulties of chastity, hunger, thirst, vigils, standing, and unceasing prayer, like ascetic practice. And Savas loved his elder for his strictness, for he considered him to be a sure guide to salvation. His asceticism and his virtues soon made him known among his fellow monks. <clears throat> because of his great humility, he refused the priesthood. So he was tonsured but didn't become a priest. I'm not sure what that means, but <clears throat> he avoided a certain level of ordination. However, his fellow monks would not listen to him, 
So he hid from them on the day of his ordination in a place they surely would not be able to find him. And due to his great brotherly love, whenever he went on a long journey with a brother, he would carry on his shoulders whatever his companion carried, even though he didn't need any of it. In 1308, and so this is the 20, age 25, 1308, after the raids of the Catalans, which caused great upheaval, not only in Thessaloniki, but also on Athos, the monastic compound, St. Savas, with other monks, at first went to a monastery dedicated to Theotokos in Thessaloniki, but not wanting to be responsible for the cares of his family, friends, and acquaintances, he left for Limnos, Lesvos, and Chios, and settled in Ephesus in Asia Minor, hey, hey, home of Heraclitus. After visiting Patmos, where John the Revelator, right, John of Patmos did the Book of Revelation, Book of, of Apocalypse, after visiting Patmos and other islands, he left for Cyprus, where, after fervent prayer, he decided to undertake the difficult path of foolishness for Christ. It's a term that they've used. So, he wandered naked and homeless, silent and hungry. Dead to the world, he practically, practically starved himself, indeed, eating wild greens only once a week. He had no mattress, no shelter, no clothing, no friendship, no acquaintance. Exposed to heat, cold, storms, wind, rain, wild beasts, reptiles, and deprivation, everyone wondered how death never visited him. For this reason, he was looked upon with awe by the angels and hated by the demons. That's true, meaning that, that it does happen with astral entities. The positive ones, there are certain, there are certain communities of higher dimensional benevolent beings and ascetics in higher dimensions, astral and above, who have great respect uh, for those who do tapas. Everybody knows that in the Buddhist Hindu traditions. Tapas meaning ascetic austerity practices. And one can uh, request <laughs> certain boons from them above, those above, by um, serious, sincere, successful per performance of tapas and austerities. And the, de the demons hate them too. Many considered him insane, and they disdained him and removed themselves far from him. Though some indeed began to respect and honor him, suspecting a secret struggle and holiness. Some misunderstood his intentions, which caused them to revile him and beat him. The devils were, the demon, the astral entities work through those. <clears throat> those that are full of hatred. But Savas had wonderful forgiveness, and he often, and he considered all these things as instigations of the demons meaning all the attack on him as instigations of the demons. Very accurate metaphysically. Often the devil tried to tempt him with pride due to his ascetic achievements, right? One of the final um, armies of Mara, the 8th or ninth or 10th or last final armies of, of Mara in the Buddhist understanding as aso uh, associated with those who have great attainment, becoming proud and arrogant by it, holding on to a false sense of identity. But the humble worker of the gospel could not be persuaded, meaning he didn't fall into that pride or wasn't defeated by those later armies. Once he came to a papal monastery while they were eating, but he left beaten and bloodied because they considered him an imposter. There you go. Soon, however, the virtues and holiness of Savas became known to the Cypriot people, Cyprus, and they even considered him a saint while he was still alive. That's rare. 
This honor very much bothered the man of God or him. Just as dishonor would bother an ordinary person, so he decided to leave Cyprus with a heavy heart because they um, thought he was a saint and he was um, not uh, proud at all. Savas decided to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and visited Sinai, right, like Mount Sinai, where he lived the ascetic life for two years, and he went back again to Jerusalem, where he remained for a considerable time in a hermitage beyond the Jordan, leading a, excuse me, a life of great austerity and amazing all who came in contact with him by his virtue and holiness. Fearing the glory of men, again, he secretly departed for the inner desert, meaning even further from the humans, where he could undertake greater asceticism and be served by the angels. That does happen. There he faced terrible temptations that brought him near death, but angels appeared to him and there was divine consolation. Christ even appeared to him for the second time in in an ineffable light, which brought him the greatest joy. That's called transfiguration. That is an apotheotic experience. So uh, the sentence goes, Christ even appeared to him for a second time in an ineffable light, which brought him the greatest joy. So he uh, had contact with intelligent infinity, I would say. He entered the Lavra of St. Savas the Sanctified. What is that? I don't know. It's a a certain status, I guess. Where he quickly became known and revered by the Brotherhood, and many from all over came to visit him and receive his blessing and counsels. So at last he's given wide respect. He remained unruffled in silence and prayer, however, and he firmly resisted every demonic plot to the point that he fasted for 40 days entirely without food and standing in vigil, which according to his biographer made him look like an unmovable statue. There he saw Christ for the third time in an ineffable light again and was filled with unspeakable joy. Then Savas decided to submit himself at the monastery of St. John, the forerunner beyond the Jordan. That's St. John the Baptist, I think. To the surprise of the monks there, and he took upon himself the obedience of Ecclesiarch. It's a certain practice, I guess. There he worked many miracles, to the point that even lions obeyed him, that like Nityananda and the animals. But because he had seen an angel in a vision urging him to return to his own land, he felt compelled to make the journey back to the sadness of the brotherhood. Passing through Jerusalem and Damascus, he came to Antioch in Syria. Syria is a very important place, actually, for early Christian tradition, and that's why the evil ones wanted to destroy it, or are continuing to try. Passing through, and the Logos lets it all ride. Mm. Passing through Jerusalem and Damascus, he came to Antioch in Syria. Along the way, he came across a woman with her dead child in her arms. Seeing her tears and hearing her entreaties, he raised the child from the dead. To avoid the the glory of men for this miracle, he took another road and left. A similar similar miracle was done by him along the way. Uh, Similar to Nityananda doing all sorts of miracles along the way. By ship, he arrived in Crete where for two years he lived in the deserted mountains in a supernatural way, meaning he didn't depend on food, perhaps. And there he became ill. (laughs) At last his body couldn't take it all. Then he went to uh, Euboea, the Peloponnese, Athens, Macedonia, Thrace, Heraclea, 
and Constantinople, where he took up residence in the monastery of Diomedes. There his fame could not be hid, and he was even sought after by Patriarch Isaiah and Emperor Andronicus II Paleologos, Old Logos. He was asked to sign a correct confession of faith, which made everyone honor and magnify him. I'm not sure what that is. As was characteristic of him, he decided to flee the admiration of the world. So the next thing, after everybody realizes that he's a saint, he runs away because he doesn't want he doesn't want the dirt of their um, idealizations, of their um, um, cult worshipping of him. He doesn't want to be worshipped at all. He wants to become one with the light and one with source and taken back into the, the bosom of, of God forever. <laughs> That's all. He returned to the Holy Mountain and lived at Vatopaidi Monastery um, in that uh, near Mount Athos, I guess. There he broke his years of silence and became a chanter, reader, ecclesiarch, server in the dining room, and nurse. He became acquainted with St. Philotios Kokinos, to whom he revealed his numerous spiritual experiences. The fathers of the monastery, in appreciation of the sanctity of Savas, wished to honor him with the office of the priesthood, but when they realized that he declined the honor out of humility, respected his refusal. So only they could appreciate him not doing what they want. While at Vatopaidi, he had many divine manifestations and angelophanies, angelophanies, meaning um, visions of angels. At the time of the Civil War, 1341-1347, while he's in his uh, 50s, I guess, the Vatopaidi fathers pressed the saint to take part in an assembly uh, in an embassy to Constantinople, with a view to putting an end to the civil strife. Although the mission was a failure, as previously predicted by the saint, who knew it and did it anyway and it failed, as he thought, he remained in Constantinople for six years at the monastery of Kora. During this time, he harshly criticized Emperor Andronikos for rousing the zealots of Thessaloniki and causing bloodshed. So even though he was so saintly, he could still harshly criticize. Same as a certain Thai, there was a certain Thai monk, uh, Ajahn, very famous, I don't forget his name, but he was way at the top of the hierarchy of uh, Orthodox Buddhist, uh, uh, Orthodox Buddhist organization in Thailand, which is like, you know, very serious. It's like the Catholic Church, as, as strong as the Catholic Church in the Western world in terms of its formality and institutional uh, basis, is the Thai Buddhist um, organization in Thailand. And the top of that, or nearly the top, uh, harshly criticized one of the previous presidents or prime ministers of Thailand, who was a total corrupt fellow, as usual. Supported by the West, of course. <laughs> of course, to overthrow do color revolution and go against China, of course, in Thailand, as the color revolution goes on there, too, today. So he too predict he too uh, harshly criticized a uh, top um, political figure, uh, criticized Emperor Andronicus for rousing the zealots of Thessaloniki, basically like Antifa of their day, and causing bloodshed. He also contributed in the time of the controversies over hesychasm, right? We talked about that, to the victory of orthodoxy, 
meaning uh, uh, supporting the, the right and the value of hesychastic practice. Going so far as to predict the condemnation of Akindenos, somebody probably who thought it was a, a blasphemy, and um, wanted to stop their practice. However, when the Emperor John and church leaders attempted to persuade him to become patriarch, hmm, the top of Eastern Orthodoxy in that zone, I guess, Savas, out of great humility and in a cunning manner, avoided the, his elevation to the patriarchal throne. His biographer tells us that Savas acquired all the virtues and had angelic purity, and before the end of his life, knew when his departure would be. He reposed in Constantinople until or around 1349. Reposed means he died or passed out of the body in 1349. And so, 49, 17, he died at 66, or he left, he did his attainment or final departure from the body around in his mid-60s. And um, two, a couple more paragraphs here. The excellent biographer of the saint was another Saint Philotios Philotios Kokinos, October 11. And so that was another, uh, on this website, they have uh, biographies of various Eastern Orthodox saints and their feast holiday days. And so the feast day or holiday uh, recognition of the other saint, Philotios Kokinos, is October 11. And... um, uh, Saint Savas has a different day, and so Saint Philotios Kokinos praised him in an excellent way. And this biography was the cause of much inspiration to Atonite monks, meaning Mount Athos, for many generations. And it can be found in numerous mans- manuscripts. It is reported that in 1840, 106, 180 years ago, when repairs were being done to the place where the bones of the reposed fathers are kept at Vatopaidi. The bones of a certain monk were discovered that had a beautiful fragrance. He was given the name Eudokimos. Eudo means a nice smell. Eudokimos, the ascetic James, in the eighteen in the eighteen forties, told the Brotherhood that this was Saint Savas, apparently after a revelation or a dream. Elder Daniel Katunakiotis, Katunakiotis says that St. Savas appeared to an elder of Vatopaiti, and he healed him of an illness, and said to him, quote, My name is not Eudokimos, but Savas the monk. However, say to the fathers of the monastery to call me Eudokimos, meaning um, nice fragrant bones or something, nice fragrant, great, great, lovely, sweet fragrance, something like that. And so, <laughs> he's so, he's so sweet, he's such a pure guy, that... Not only did he speak the truth uh, in a dream, I mean, presu- presumably, if it's true, and it could certainly be, he came to this other elder in a dream, uh, clarifying, because he loved virtue and he loved truth, hey, that's not actually, uh, my name is not that, <laughs> but if you want to call me that, it's okay. Yudokimos. His memory is celebrated on October 11, June 15, the Wednesday after Pasha with the Fathers of Sinai, and on July 10 with the Fathers of Vatopaiti Monastery. A complete service of praise was composed in his honor by Dr. Slepis. Uh, Slepis. Slepis. So, 
this <laughs> was posted at 1.01.00 p.m. Um, uh, in 2016. And so that's what a um, serious um, ascetic um, devotee of Christ, seeker of transfiguration and apotheosis looks like. And for his devotion um, and ascetic practice uh, and virtue and selflessness, uh, he was rewarded with with multiple transfiguring apotheotic experiences. And um, yet he still couldn't change the political. <laughs> and uh, yet he could still harshly criticize the political. Mm-hmm. And um, the political didn't change. So like Nityananda said, even Mahatma can't do everything. And so um, I think it's a beautiful story. He's obviously a beautiful soul. Uh, I, and I would not say <laughs> that he only attained harvestability to fourth density because of limiting views of human nature um, or a limited view of human soul, of, of true nature, a limited view of human potential and limited achievement. I wouldn't say that applies to him. Uh, because he broke out of doctrine and dogma and basically put his trust in um, divinity to, to keep him alive. Um, minimal depend, minimal attachment to anything material and physical and social and interpersonal. <clears throat> he, he, he renounced all those desires and um, had a faith in... Um, the one God, one loving, infinite power creator. Uh, and he may well have practiced, um, you know, certain Jesus Christ-centered uh, praxis, practices, um, but he wasn't limited uh, because he was seeking God the Father, not seeking just some kind of relationship with Christ or Jesus. And so you see, the Eastern Orthodox, as far as I can tell, uh, retaining um, a, an appreciation of practice and um, very much, I'm sure, influenced by Buddhist and Hindu um, teachings and teachers through the centuries. Um, while they revere Christ or Jesus, um, really return or st- are, has seemed to be centered in seeking Godhead the Father, or Godhead the Ultimate, the Infinite, the Boundless, as the, the goal of praxis. Not, um, I don't know what the Protestants are looking for, really, to be saved, to be born again. Th- this guy was looking to be um, <laughs> transfigured completely, not to be born again or saved. He was already saved, <laughs> meaning he was already fourth density harvestable, actually, from a very early age. Uh, he may be a fourth density wonder. He may be a sixth density wonder. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I certainly don't imply to limit any, uh, or uh, have construed any sense of limit to what these practices could lead to. I mean, he. I'm not sure if he's really finished with, I wouldn't presume he's finished with the octave, but I uh, certainly have no problem seeing him as a non-returner meaning he was reborn. <clears throat> he, he, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> he could have left the octave. Um, he could also be non-returner and end up at uh, late sixth density. 
um, with the understanding that I is light, or we have become light, as Ra said, and then uh, get you know be very close to uh, getting free of that attachment of um, identification as light, and then go back to source or uh, become one with the logos, tatvamasi or aham brahmasi, and end up <laughs> finished with the path. Uh, pretty quickly after that lifetime as Saint Savas. So it's it's when people don't do hard practice or don't have practices that they apply themselves to strongly that um, the Western, particularly Western, limited notions of the path with a limited notion of human nature and human potential have bearing. They have bearing for those particularly who are not doing practice, who are just thinking, you know, doctrine, dogma-based spiritual spirituality, path as faith and tithing and obedience and uh, what? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> going to church, um, professing by the mouth something or other, Jesus died for my sins. This guy is way out of this league. <laughs> He's not... He's way beyond the profession of uh, the creed that Jesus, you know, died and was reborn for my sins or something. Um, he's trying to clear the totality of um, desire and attachment and craving and clinging. I mean, he's trying to root out all craving, basically. Even with this, you know, this particular uh, ideology, you know, particular doctrine, uh, Christian Eastern Orthodox dogmas and or doctrines, which I think have some limit. Um, but um, right practice breaks through all doctrinal limit, actually. So they, they, uh, there have been many, <laughs> a, a many or a few at least, uh, Buddhist practitioners over the centuries that did that spoke their mantras the wrong way, <laughs> didn't pronounce the mantra correctly, and still had some attainment or first level awakening, and others that had just some confused confused understanding of doctrine or scripture, or none at all, and had some attainment or first level awakening sotapanna stream entry. So, um, doctrine or belief holds back or restrains the uh, unpracticing. <laughs> the, the practitioners who, meanwhile, pra practice depends on what practice you're doing and how it's understood as well, meaning um, there are people who practice for 25 years meditation and they're still very unwell after 25 years for some reason, or even though some things have grown other conditions may have gotten worse or they're still very uh, stuck in some ways because they have uh, avoided. And that's like Ra saying that no matter how well developed six chakra in and of itself doesn't clear lower triad blockages. So some people do fine practice, <clears throat> develop six chakra or fifth and six, but uh, lower triad blockages remain because there's some heart chakra blockage unwilling to feel the pain. They're unwilling to feel certain pain or see certain truths that are painful. And therefore, uh, chakras one through four retain a certain blockage, while six may be fine. And that's where you get, that's called spiritual bypass. <clears throat> uh, I can't say, he, I wouldn't say he's doing any bypass, but 
um, if he's coming back uh, in a vision to another monk, it's likely that he's uh, not out of the octave yet. And so, um, but this is beyond me. But no doubt, this is what a very serious, uh, saintly, um, very self-abnegating, very committed, totally committed practitioner of uh, uh, hesychastic practice looks like. And he had multiple transfigurations or multiple apotheotic experiences of uh, divine light as well as joy and angelic interplay uh, and all sorts of you know multi-dimensional visions, I'm sure. And then he had some miraculous healing powers. <laughs> and and that's, that's what happens. And so this is... Uh, I mean, if he, he's the kind of guy who would probably incarnate as an arhat, uh, as, a, as a Brahmin at the time of the next Buddha or at the previous Gautama's uh, manifestation and listen to a teaching and boom, knock out of the octave and go be, get enlightenment after hearing um, some teaching from uh, a Buddha. And <laughs> that, that's the kind of guy who would come in with a, with a Buddha uh, listen to teaching and be finished with the octave after that lifetime. That's what it looks like to me. So there you go. I hope that's interesting to you. It's an inspiring and a beautiful soul. And so next time, uh, I want to look into the section on Junren, which brings us back to <laughs> more theory and more um, doctrine um, uh, and a very non-ascetic <laughs> approach. Uh, more theory than practice. But um, I think Saint Savas of Atopaiti was a great man, a great being, and truly a saint. And he basically was cutting craving, even though it was in a, you know, yeah, it's in a certain doctrinal context. He was on a Catholic Eastern Orthodox raft of doctrine and praxis. But... Um, it doesn't matter <laughs> because his his work was universal. His working, his praxis were universal to cut all craving and uh, it sounds like it was quite successful and um, an important figure and we see what apotheosis and transfiguration looks like in practice and uh, it's quite doable. So, that's it for today. So, next time we go to Jenren and see where we go from there. I hope this was useful, certainly very interesting and inspiring. Please take good care of yourself. Thank you to everyone here. Take care and good night.